But Father, it is good and it is right for us to come together now before your word. But, oh, Father, I pray that you would prevent that we would look into it as a mirror and see in our lives what needs to change and yet walk away, as James says, as if nothing ever happened, as if we noticed nothing. Prevent, Father, that we would think all the while we hear of this that we wish someone else were here to hear it. But rather, Father, that you would give us ears to hear. And a heart that wants to squeeze and extract every truth, every drop of precious truth for our own souls, that we would not leave here unchanged, but changed. All of this to your glory, Father, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And read with me verses 1 through 4. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. From verses 1 and 2, we learned last time that true hope-inspiring faith that pleases the Lord is a faith that clings to God's Word, even though what is promised is invisible to us. We cannot see what has been promised. Nevertheless, we believed. And all that Israel understood what Joshua and Caleb understood when they got to the promised land the first time, there was a stark difference, a stark, very tangible example of two groups of people, two who laid hold of God's promise, though it was invisible, and clung to it and said, these giants are giants for sure, but we can whoop them because God is on our side. And yet there were ten spies who came back from the same place and said, they are too big for us. They are too big for God. We do not trust the one who is promised. And so for 40 years they wandered, and for 40 years they died, all but Joshua and Caleb, until they were ready to go back and trust God for his promise, until they were ready to take him at his word and do what seemed impossible. A person of true faith makes decisions in life that the world cannot understand, but which the Lord is pleased simply because he believes what God has promised. He lays hold of it. He acts on it. And now the author is going to take us on a brief tour of redemptive history to illustrate how true faith has been manifest in the lives of some particular Old Testament saints. But before introducing the first character, he offers an example of faith that even the skeptics in this Jewish congregation can accept. 
What's faith like? This kind of faith that he's talking about. Well, let's just talk about the seeds of faith. Verse 3. That is by faith all of us, whether we accept the teaching about Jesus as high priest or not. We all understand, verse 3, that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. You believe that. You have faith in that, right? I mean, you believe there is a God. You believe that God created the heavens and the earth, right? That's his argument. In other words, they all took it by faith that the universe of space and time was created by the word of God. And how did he do it? Well, they believed what the Word of God said, that God created everything out of nothing. He created all that is visible out of that which is invisible. He started with nothing, and He created everything. That's the perspective of faith. God says, I will do this or that. And our response is, I believe that, therefore I will do this and that. Even the unbelieving Jews of that day had to admit that their view of the origin of the universe was grounded in faith. And just as an aside, every person who has a view about the origin of the universe, and we all do, we take that by faith, whether you are in the pseudoscience side or whether you are on the biblical science side, um, we both take it presuppositionally. We both have presuppositions that cannot be empirically, tangibly proven. We take it by faith. Those who believe in Darwin's view must take that by faith. The question is not, is one faith and one reason? The question is, which faith is more reasonable? But even the unbelieving Jews who did not believe in Jesus and who were part of this church wondering about whether or not they should cast themselves entirely on this one who claimed to be the Son of God, they even believed that God had revealed in His Word and they believed about the origin of the universe. That's where faith starts. But true faith, the kind of faith, kind of faith with which God is pleased, moves beyond our understanding and profoundly affects our behavior. And all faith must. If your faith is only in your understanding, then you don't have true faith. What follows is here in one verse, verse 4, the tale of two worshipers. The tale of two worshipers. It's a story of two men, two brothers, who both believed in God. They both worshipped. They both made sacrifices, but only one of them accept, was acceptable to God. Only one was acceptable to God. The story of Cain and Abel comes from the very beginning of God's revelation, the fourth chapter of Genesis to be exact. And here the author of Hebrews takes us to the first real demonstration of authentic faith. Abel was a better candidate for this than his father, Adam, since Abel, like us, had never seen the Lord. We have no record that Abel ever had any direct connection or direct sighting of the Lord or walking with him in the cool of the day as Adam and Eve had. He simply had to take his parents' word for it. He simply had to take it by faith that God existed. And that was the explanation for everything that he saw all around him. 
And so Abel was a better candidate for explaining what faith is like than Adam was. So if we're going to start at the beginning of human history, we don't start with Adam. We start with somebody we can identify with, and that's Abel. He and his older brother Cain were the first human beings to live before God in faith and not by sight. Let's take a minute to turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 because we need to read this to refresh ourselves on what this whole story is about. Genesis, I didn't say Ephesians 4, did I? Genesis 4, Ephesians just seems to come out of my mouth every time I quote a scripture. Genesis 4, 1 through 12. Let's just read this. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told this to Abel, his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too much to bear. Clearly, the author of Hebrews is not interested in delving into all the details of the story. He summarizes the whole thing in one verse. There's one point that he's trying to make. And that's obvious by the fact that he summarizes in such a, 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 a large story, in such a small a number of words. Perhaps there's much more that can be extracted from the narrative for our benefit. Surely, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. But the author of Hebrews simply wants to use this story to illustrate true faith. I think there are three things the author would have us learn from this primitive story. Namely, he wants us to see that true faith produces three things. It produces authentic worship. It produces authentic righteousness. And it produces an authentic witness. It produces authentic worship, authentic righteousness, and an authentic witness. Let's see if we can discover authentic worship here. 
I want to bring to your attention that in the church to which the author of Hebrews is writing, there are two kinds of people. There are religious people who trust in Christ alone for their salvation. That's why it's a real church. And there are religious people who trust in their own righteousness for salvation. Both are religious. Similarly, Cain and Abel were both religious. Both believed in God, both worshipped, but only one was acceptable to God. And this is the way it is in every church. The church is always full of religious people. But some of those religious people trust in Christ alone for their righteousness, and others trust in themselves. Now, these two men lived in the same place. They even grew up under the same roof. They had the same parents, the same atmosphere, the same shaping influences upon their life, yet they had radically different views of worship. The way of Cain was the way of unbelief. The way of Cain was the way of self-righteousness and man-made religion. But the way of Abel, on the other hand, was the way of obedient faith. Obedient faith. Now, to understand what's happening in this narrative, we need to understand a few things that are not self-evident until you begin looking at it and uh, looking at the text and asking some questions. Whenever you're studying the Word of God, what's the first principle? What's the first thing you need to do? It's observation. You must make careful observations about the text. What does the text say? What does the text not say? What questions does the text produce in your mind that, if answered, could shed light on the text? If your observations are good, then it will lead you to good interpretation, which will lead you then to excellent application that will change your life. And first of all, let's, let's make some observations here. First, Abel's, Abel's sacrifice was done, the author says, by faith, Right? By faith, Abel offered a superior sacrifice. And if it's by faith, then it must be in response to God's word. He was trusting something. He was believing something. Faith is always an act of obedience to the word of God. As Paul said it, faith comes by what? hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10:17. So it seems clear that both men had been told by God or by God through the parents on God's behalf that a sacrifice to atone for their sin was necessary. It's inconceivable, frankly, that Cain and Abel accidentally stumbled onto the sacrifice as a way of worshiping God. Why were they doing that? How did that get started? Well, we are not told in the scripture, but we are told in Hebrews chapter 11 that it was an act of faith. Therefore, it must have been an act of obedience. God must have communicated it to them. Secondly, we must must know that only an animal sacrifice was acceptable to God. Now, people stumble here. Why, Why is it that Cain's offering of vegetables was rejected? I mean, there were grain offerings offered to God in the Mosaic system, right? Well, that is right. But if the issue is sin, grain was never offered for sin. Nothing but the blood of an, of a, of an atoning sacrifice was offered for sin. And surely the parents had explained to them that in response to their sin, their own sin, Adam and Eve's sin, Genesis 3.21, that God himself killed an animal. 
And he killed an animal for this purpose, to cover them because of their sin. He provided for them a covering. And as a covering, I would suggest, he could have, I mean, the Lord could have made something out of a non-living, uh, non-animate fabric, right? He could have made them cotton. He could have, uh, he could have made blue jeans for them. Why did he choose an animal? There's more to here than just covering their bodies. He was covering their sin. He was presenting to himself a kafar, a covering, an atoning covering by the shedding of the blood of an animal. The Old Testament doesn't reveal the details of this, but it's clear from Genesis and Job that the earliest saints of old offered sacrifices for sin long before God gave the details of the sacrificial system. We see it here with Cain and Abel. I've already made reference to God initiating it uh, just outside the garden when he killed an animal to cover them. But then you go through history and you find Noah, who did what? As soon as he got off of the boat, he offered to the Lord sacrifices and a lot of them. He killed a lot of those animals to give glory to God, and to offer it up as a prayer of thanksgiving. And then you have Job, who was offering again and again and again before the homes of his children. In case any of them had sinned, he wanted to make sure that the Lord was propitiated by the sacrifice. And then you have Abraham, to whom the Lord eventually revealed himself. But we find Abraham making sacrifices and offerings. And so they must have known that the only animal, only an animal sacrifice was acceptable to God for the atonement of their sins. Number three, there also must have been an established place outside the garden where sacrifices were made. Because the brothers brought offerings, some sort of altar must have been used by which to make the sacrifice. One scholar wrote these words, it seems perfectly consistent with God's grace that from the beginning he would have provided for some means of worship. Perhaps the altar was a forerunner to the mercy seat, a place where man could come for forgiveness and atonement. And so he would come with the prescribed sacrifice to the designated place of sacrifice. Furthermore, if God had communicated the need for sacrifice for sin to Adam, then Cain would have would have already been conforming to this practice. In fact, both of them would have already been conforming to this practice for over a hundred years. This was not new. We get that from the timing of the birth of the replacement after Abel is killed. When Abel is killed, God gives Eve a new child whose name is what? Seth. And Seth means substitute. And we know that Adam was 130 years old when God gave Seth. Now, if we take it into account that Seth was born sometime shortly after um, Abel was killed, we don't know how many years. It could have been, you know, it could have been 100 years later. Uh, that just strengthens the point, does it not? I mean, these guys have been making this sacrifice for over 100 years, coming to what perhaps was a designated place, making the designated offering and doing it again and again and again. 
And then it's important to note that in Genesis, the Genesis account, the men offered their sacrifice in the course of time. It says that in verse 3, so it came about in the course of time, or literally at the end of days. And scholars will tell us that this is an indication there was a specific period of time a specific period of time, perhaps a, a time that God had established for offering the required sacrifice at the appropriate place. If this is the case, then Cain and Abel fully understood God's word about the need for animal sacrifices since they were children. And they had obeyed it for many, many years. And finally, the brothers would have understood the need for substitutionary atonement. And let me say one more thing about the sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that he mentions he offered the sacrifice and the fat portions? I mean, there's, there's very significant detail here because when Moses would come along and God would give him the sacrificial system, it was more than just killing an animal and throwing him on the altar. They killed an animal, they skinned it, they took the fat portions especially, and they laid it on the altar to give that sweet aroma as unto the Lord. And we see the brothers, or at least Abel, doing the same thing. But finally, they would have understood that the need was for a substitutionary atonement. That is, the need for an animal to die in their place because of sin. For, as we would learn explicitly later, the wages of sin is death. Again, God had established the principle of covering sin through the shedding of blood when Adam and Eve first sinned. Abel's faith was an expression of his conscious need for atonement. Something needed to die. Someone needed to die in his place. He understood that. When you tie all of this up together, you begin to get the picture that the reason that God accepted one offering and not the other was because one, one, was, one offered it in obedient faith and the other offered his sacrifice in unbelief. By refusing to bring the prescribed offering for atonement, Cain was saying that his own good intentions were enough to please God. After all, his offering was more appealing than his brother's. You know, I expect that Cain had made the, the correct offering for all those years. And perhaps one day he said, you know what? This is a big bloody mess. You know, we haven't even seen him. I mean, wouldn't it be more appealing? I mean, isn't, isn't, a, isn't a grapefruit and a plum and a, a cantaloupe, and a watermelon, and a little wheat. You know, we can garnish it with some celery and some, you know, maybe some herbs. You know, we can make it pretty. And we could put it on the offering. I can make this thing. You ever seen uh, Diane Dunn pull together one of our receptions here? She turns vegetables into flowers. She turns cakes into towers. I mean, she can do anything with food. Yeah, her family's back there going, yeah, you better believe it. <clears throat> and Cain was thinking, you know, I could make a beautiful sacrifice. One that the Lord would just look at and say, wow, you're being really creative. I like that. 
And so he came up with his own idea about how to worship God. He came up with his own plan, came up with his own gig, his own fanciful means of worship. I can do it better than the prescribed method. I'll just give it a little twist. I'll just fix it up a little bit. I'll garnish it. I'll gild it. I'll make it a little prettier and, and a little less smelly and certainly not bloody. Who wants a bunch of bloody meat for, and fat anyway? Cain's offering was a demonstration of self-righteous pride. I don't have to do this the prescribed way. I can do it in a way that seems right to me. Cain acknowledged a supreme being. He recognized God, but he did not obey his word. He believed in God, but he did not trust God. He thought he could approach God any way that seemed good and expect that God would somehow be impressed. In doing so, Cain became the father of all false religion. He became the father of all false religion. There is a way that seems right to a man, David says, but the end thereof leads to death. Cain became history's first apostate. Is that not what the author of Hebrews has been warning about again and again and again? Do not turn your back on him. There is nothing else. That's precisely what Cain did. He was the first to become a partaker of the privileges of growing up in a believing home under faithful, though sinful, parents and then turn his back on all that he knew to be true. And since that time, there have always been religious men who know what God says, they know what God requires, but they reject it in favor of their own religious ideas. I mean, all you've got to do is get on the Internet and watch what churches are doing these days. I saw a video not long ago about clown worship. Did you see that? It was, I think, an Anglican church in New York City. And they all came in dressed like clowns, the the, uh, priest and all the altar boys and all the whatever. They all came in dressed like clowns and they had their face painted like clowns. Instead of, and, and nobody talked, everybody mimed. And, um... And then instead of having a sermon, instead of having a preacher, they had a woman come in who mimed the creation account. And it was very, very impressive. That's what Jude was referring to when he says in the text that Brent read earlier, they have gone the way of Cain. They have gone the way of Cain. They've come up with their own ideas about how worship ought to be done. And God rejects it. There have always been men like these. Even in the early church, it was plagued by such men creeping into the church and doing great harm to the body of Christ. Jude said, I intended to write a letter about the glory of the gospel But because of the circumstances, I found it necessary to warn you about men who creep into the church and do this kind of thing. They are clouds without water. 
They have fallen into the air of Balaam. They have gone the way of Cain. And that brings us to a, a second thing the author of Hebrews would have us learn. First, true faith will be manifest in authentic worship. But second, true faith will be manifest in authentic righteousness. Authentic righteousness. Cain was like the Pharisee in the temple in Luke 18. You're familiar with this story? It's amazing how many different things in the, Bibles con- in the Bible connects. We got the story of, uh, in Luke 18, 9 through 14, of the Pharisee who prayed in the temple. And you have the tax gatherer also there who prayed. But the Pharisee prayed to himself. He prayed to himself, the text says, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Isn't that slick? God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Man, that'll just make your head spin if you try to get your arms around that. Is that chasing your tail? What does that mean? Listen, any form of self-righteousness, any form of works-based salvation, no matter what they claim in terms of God's involvement in that self-righteousness, is self-righteousness still. Lord, I thank you. And notice this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now be careful here. And this is important, folks, because I think there are an awful lot of people in the church who believe they are born again because God has given them the ability to do righteous things. And they don't realize that what they're trusting in is the righteous things that they do that God has enabled. Rather than, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. It is all of Christ. Works are simply the fruit of the, of the seed that He has planted in my heart of the change that He has made in me, of removing from me the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Therefore, I work the works of righteousness that God has prepared in advance for me to do. It's very easy for people to come to church, they're religious people, they come week after week after week, and they believe, God, You have enabled me to do righteous works unto salvation. It's very slick and very deceptive. This is where Cain's trust was. This is where the Pharisees' trust was. I'll tell you another story. We call it the story of the prodigal son. John MacArthur's got a brand new book coming out called The Tale of Two Sons. Maybe uh, a number of us were there when he preached that message. Maybe the best sermon I've ever heard preached in my entire life. But he tells a story about two sons. One is the prodigal son, and the other one is his brother. One is kind of the character of the tax collector. The other one is the Pharisee. One has come to the end of himself, and he throws himself before his father and says, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I am unworthy to be called your son. He beats his breast God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Doesn't it sound like that? 
And the other brother in self-righteousness says, haven't I been here the whole time doing, 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 faithfully, faithfully serving? You have given me the capacity to do all of these things. Haven't you noticed? The story is the same, whether it's Cain and Abel, whether it's the tax collector and the Pharisee, or whether it's the prodigal son and his brother. In all three cases, the issue is, what are you trusting in? What is your source of righteousness? How is your sin taken care of? Is it by works that you do by yourself or that God enables you to do? Or is it in the atoning sacrifice that was made on your account alone? That's the difference between Cain and Abel. That's the difference between Cain and Abel. Abel was a man of true faith, which manifested itself in authentic righteousness. He knew God's word. He understood his sin. He understood his need of atonement. He humbly accepted the fact that God's ways are higher and holier than his own ways, so that when he came to the established place at the established time with the established offering, he offered the kind of worship that God was pleased to receive. He was like the tax collector in the temple about whom Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. And then he adds this phrase, rather than the other. Somehow God made it clear that he accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. And that's another question. How did he do that? How did they know? I mean, obviously everybody knew. Everybody knew that one was accepted and one wasn't. How did he do that? Well, Jewish tradition su suggests that fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. We don't know that for sure. The text doesn't say that. But we do know that God did that exact same thing at least five other times in Scripture. A little bit different in each time, but it was nevertheless fire of God. Almost like the Shekinah glory. You know, it was a pillar of fire by night. Pillar of cloud by day, but the fire representing the very burning presence of holy God accepted the sacrifice. In any case, they knew whose, whose sacrifice was acceptable. Hebrews simply says that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a better testimony that he was righteous. In Matthew 23:35, Jesus refers to him as righteous Abel. The point is that wherever there is true faith, there will be true worship. True worship being offered to God by people's who, who, people whose lives are marked by true righteousness. Wherever there is true faith, there will be true worship by people whose lives are marked by true righteousness. That's just another way of saying that these people live by faith. They live by faith. The righteous live by faith. They make decisions based not on how they feel, but on what God has said. And they simply and profoundly trust God and His Word as Abel did. When you trust God in that way, you may sometimes look foolish. You may look foolish, 
In fact, you may look scandalous. That word scandal comes from the Greek scandalon. Scandalon. And Paul said, that's what we are. That's what we are. We're fools for Christ and we're a scandal to the Jews. They can't hardly believe it. They're so offended when we do the things that we do. But this is who we are because of what God has done and what God has commanded. Therefore, we obey. We obey. I tell you, brothers and sisters, if there are problems in your home, if there's problems in your marriage, if there's problems with another person in your life, it's because someone's not obeying the Word of God. You say, well, obeying the Word of God for me would cost me an awful lot, and it would hurt an awful lot. The question then is, do you trust God? Do you trust God? I told you the story about the time uh, my friend in seminary bought a set of commentaries, and they didn't show up. You remember that story? You're, you're looking at me blank, so let me tell you. They, um, my, my brother, uh, my friend, my brother in the Lord, uh, when I was going to Dallas Seminary, bought a set of commentaries from uh, CBD, Christian Book Distributors, uh, ChristianBooks.com, I think is what it is now, and bought a set of commentaries, and um, they didn't show up. And he waited for weeks, and they didn't show up, so he called them, and he said, hey, you know where are my commentaries? I paid for them. And they said, oh, we'll get them right to you. So they overnighted him a set of those exact same commentaries. And they showed up, and he took them, and praise the Lord, you know, problem resolved. Three days later, another, <laughs> the original set showed up. And I didn't know anything about any of this story, but I happened to walk into the mailroom at the time at the seminary, and he, uh, he got that box, and he opened it up, and he said, whoa, looky here, an extra box of commentaries. Anybody want these? He said, hey, Dan. You want a set of commentaries? And I'm going, are you kidding? I'm a seminary student. I mean, I'm drooling all over that. Yes, in fact, that's a set that I want. It's a six-volume set of Greek New Testament commentaries. Man, what a treasure. So I didn't know anything of what happened, so I took them. I took them home. And I went back and I thanked him for them and and, uh, and said, how come you end up giving that to me? And he told me the story. And I went, ruh-roh. Somebody said if commentaries didn't get paid for. And I sat them on my shelf in Kansas, in my office, in my first ministry. And I never used them. It was like the telltale heart. Every time I reached for them, you know, and guilt. Oh, my goodness. I can't use them. Didn't even look at them. <laughs> I moved here. And 94, and put those same set of commentaries on my shelf. Never used them. I couldn't. I felt so guilty, and I didn't want to implicate my friend whom I loved. And so one day, the guilt was overbearing, and I knew I should have dealt with this a long time ago, so I wrote a letter. It's sitting in my office. I should have brought it down. Wrote a letter to CBD. I said, let me tell you the story. Told him what happened. I said, it was way wrong for me to keep these. And um, I've looked on your Internet site, and I found how much you're selling them for today. And here is a check for that amount. Please forgive me. And then I sat and I waited, and I thought, any minute the police are going to show up. You know, (laughs) the commentary police are going to show up. (laughs) 
And it took months to get a letter, letter back. I finally get the letter back. And uh, the lady who wrote the letter said, Mr. Kirk, um, please forgive our uh, delay in getting back to you. We weren't sure what to do with your letter. We've never received anything like this before. And um, so two things. Yes, you are forgiven. And thank you for owning this. And secondly, please find enclosed a gift certificate for the amount of the check that you sent. And please feel free to purchase anything in our, on our website with that amount. And that could have been dealt with immediately years previous. But you know why I didn't do it? Same reason Cain didn't offer the appropriate sacrifice. His way was better. And it led to death. And you're sitting here this morning and you know that there are issues in your heart that you're unwilling to deal with. And you think, my way is better. And it's eaten you alive. You need to repent. You need to deal with it. It's not going to get any better. It will only get worse. Talk about wandering. Talk about being aimless. Talking about not being able to fellowship with God and yet you're a religious person. And you'll end up saying, like Cain said, in verse, what verse is it? 15, so the Lord said to him, therefore, no, verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. You may say, this kind of living is too great for me to bear. And the only way around it is to repent. The only way back through it is to repent. John Piper says it this way, and a lot of you guys in men's ministry read this in The Pleasures of God this past week, perhaps. He says this, The commandments of God are only as hard to obey as the promises of God are hard to believe. The commandments of God are only as hard to obey as the promises of God are hard to believe. See, the question is not, is the, is the commandment obeyable? The only question is, do I believe him? Do I trust him? Will I do it his way and not my way? No one who continually disregards the word of God can, said, can be said to be a person of faith. You're not a person of faith. You are a pers person of religion. You are a person of theology. You are a person who claims to know God, perhaps. Maybe you're a part of the religious right. But as James says, faith without the following works, without the appropriate obedience, is dead. It's a corpse. It is good for nothing. It is rotten. It deserves to be buried. And God made his approval of Abel and disapproval of Cain absolutely clear. And everything else that happens in this story resulted from God's response to each man's response to his word. Cain was rejected and sent to be a wanderer, but Abel became a beacon, lighting the way of true faith. And this brings us to a third thing that the author would have us learn about faith. Not only does it produce authentic worship and authentic righteousness, it also produces an authentic witness, an authentic witness. The last word of verse 4, and this is in Hebrews 11, the last word in verse 4 says this, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. 
When God confronted Cain about killing his brother, he said, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Genesis 4.10. And after his death, Abel's blood cried out for justice. It's as if his blood being personified is crying out as the saints who have been martyred and are under the altar in Revelation. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, holy and true? How long until we are vindicated? The Lord says, that's, that's your brother's blood. It's screaming to me from the ground about the evil that you have done. It still speaks. But more than that, Abel's life still speaks, even to us. He says, the life of faith is the life of humble obedience to God's word. It is the life of one who knows that there is a righteousness that he desperately needs and doesn't have and cannot earn. It's a life that looks to God's provision for forgiveness and for righteousness and redemption. And it seizes all of that by faith. By faith. Though none of it can be seen with the eyes, yet the eyes of faith see it clearly and embrace it with all of its might. That's faith. It's making decisions, tangible, empirical decisions about your life, about the next moment, about the next conversation that you have, about the next thing you choose to do or not do. All of that based on what God has revealed in His Word and you look at that and say, Father, I will not because your word says and I believe. Or, Father, I will though it terrifies me and I know it's going to hurt. Nevertheless, because of your word, I will obey. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Though you sweat drops of blood. Hebrews 12, the author chides us, chides them. In verse 4, he says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. I mean, don't think of yourself as some kind of Messiah syndrome, some kind of martyr. I mean, have you ever been to the garden? Have you ever resisted temptation and sin so much that you sweat great drops of blood? Then quit your whining and obey. This is the life that God loves. This is the life that God blesses. This is the life of faith that finds God, God's approval. For the just shall live. By faith. Faith is not just what gets you into the kingdom. Faith is the ground upon which you walk. The just shall live by faith. What are you walking on? What is the basis of your decisions? You're making those decisions based on something. Some preconceived idea. Some philosophy maybe you've developed. Maybe you got it from Oprah. You got it from somewhere. God requires us to obey His Word as faithful Abel did. May the Lord find us as He found Him 
faithful. Because the faith that saves has always been the faith that humbly and joyfully obeys the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks this morning. It is to you that we offer our sacrifices of praise. But, oh, Father, it's so easy to come in here and sing the beautiful music, the beautiful songs. So easy to quote your truth. We even print it out so we can all say it together. It's quite another thing to open our mouth after the service and not sin with our mouth. It's quite another thing to be headed to the car after the service and not sin with our attitude. It's quite another thing to make it through this day without acting toward one another in a manner that's selfish, pretending that we're good Christians when in fact we live in unbelief. And so I pray, Father, that your powerful, relevant word would change us and conform us to the likeness of your Son. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.